The following sermon was delivered on February 28, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff gave this message entitled The God Who Sees on Revelation 2, 18-29. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. All that glitters is not gold. You heard that phrase before? I'm sure you have. It's very popular, isn't it? It shows up in all kinds of places. I, I traced back the phrase a little bit in thinking about this letter to Thyatira, and there is a, an instance of it in Latin, but I think it really enters into our English literature and even popular culture canon through none other than Geoffrey Chaucer. In the 12th uh, century, there's a, a French antecedent. Perhaps Chaucer picked it up from him, but it really comes in in the Canterbury Tales. And then Shakespeare makes it famous in one of uh, the subplots in The Merchant of Venice. John Dryden in the 17th century incorporates it into his poetry. And perhaps it enters American culture through that great poet Bugs Bunny. And it comes in in a cartoon in the early 20th century or mid-20th century. And then it's picked up from Bugs Bunny by Neil Young and Led Zeppelin. And we also see it, and I'll get to this later on in the sermon, in J.R.R. Tolkien, and he puts a bit of a spin on it that I think is interesting. But what is the meaning of this? All that glitters is not gold. Probably in our modern culture, some of us have gold jewelry, but especially the, the kids. It's not like we handle gold all the time. So what, what exactly is this saying? Well, it's saying something very simple. Things frequently are not as they seem. Things frequently are not as they at first appear. Sadly, this truth, this observation, which is so obvious in our culture, is often true in the church as well. Things frequently are not as they seem. And we see that this holds true in the church at times. We see that in our passage tonight, in this message to the church in Thyatira. Just a bit of review, we visited so far three churches in our tour of Asia Minor, three of the seven uh, in these opening chapters of Revelation. Each visit, or rather each letter, I should really say, gives a new perspective to us, a new dimension on the experience of the church in all ages. For these letters were not written merely to these churches in ancient Asia Minor, but they were written to us as well. And they're eternally, well, not eternally, but they're always relevant to the church through every age. First, we saw the church in Ephesus and its problems of having lost its first love. Well, Thyatira gets exonerated of that. We'll get to that in the passage. And then we see faithful Smyrna, which had undergone some persecution, but it was about to get much worse. And Christ gives them a message of hope and strength. And then we have the church in Pergamum, which of the other six really resembles Thyatira most closely with its problems of false teaching and, and deception and consorting for economic advantage or some other reason. Pergamum was only about 45 miles from Thyatira, so it makes some sense that they would bear some resemblance to one another. And today when we come to Thyatira, we see a church with a secret quality that Christ brings out into the open. A church where perhaps all that glitters is not gold. 
We don't know much about Thyatira from Scripture. The only other reference to this city is in Acts chapter 16, where we have the account of the conversion of two very unlikely converts. First, Lydia, and this is in Philippi. She's the first convert in Europe, but she's from Thyatira. She's a merchant of purple clothing and textiles, a woman of some wealth. And her, together with her household, are, con are converted and brought into the church. And then also the Philippian jailer, perhaps even less likely than Lydia, a little bit later on in Acts 16. But what we do know about Thyatira, beyond its being a famous origin of Lydia, what we do know is revealed to us in this text that no matter how mysterious or enigmatic a place or a community or even a person may be, Christ knows all. He sees everything about this church and he lays it bare for us, doesn't he? His sight penetrates the darkest darkness and the thickest veils. And what he makes known to us by his word in the case of the church in Thyatira is what I've already said two times. All that glitters is not gold. What I seek to impress upon you this evening from our passage tonight is this, that Christ is the God who sees the truth about the church and gives himself as the church's eternal reward. Christ is the God who himself sees the truth about the church and then gives himself as the church's eternal reward. We'll explore this under three headings. First, Christ is the God who sees you. And when I say you, I mean you as the church in verse 18. And then Christ sees the impurity of the church in verses 19 through 23. And then finally, Christ is the church's eternal reward in verses 24 through 29. There are many details and connections in this passage. So what I'm going to do tonight is not so much an exhaustive exposition, but rather really drilling down on that which the text emphasizes for us under these three headings. So first, Christ is the God who sees you. Look at verse 18 with me. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Note there are three features here of Christ highlighted for us. Are there not? First, he is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. This Son of God is promised to us in that familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 6. And what are some of the titles that are given to us by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, and then picked, on, picked up in, um, in the Gospels? We read um, chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the self-same Son of God brought to us here in Revelation chapter 2. Not only that, this station, this, 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 uh, this feature of Christ, I should say, this relationship to God the Father is confirmed in Matthew chapter 4 at his baptism. When the heavens are open and what does God say? Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Again, self-same son of God here in Revelation chapter 2. And then third, and perhaps most significantly for the immediate context, he's revealed to us again in the same connection with not in so many words in Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 19. 
Listen as I read these verses. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. Though son of God is not... Uh, reproduced in that passage, clearly this is speaking of the same figure, the, the very same characterization of Christ given to us here in Revelation chapter 2, 18. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. You see all three qualities coming together in that one picture, that one vision of John's in Revelation chapter 19. Truly, This is the Son of God, God himself, very God of very God. This should be a great comfort to believers, should it not? He's coming as a conquering king who will deliver you from all your enemies. As our catechism says, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It's a great comfort to believers, but on the flip side, this would be a great terror to unbelievers, would it not? What was that description of the scene in Revelation 19? The great supper. Who was feasting? Birds in mid-heaven upon what? The enemies of God. The bloody scene. Why am I highlighting these two realities? Because we find both kinds of people, both kinds of hearers of this letter in the church in Thyatira. Find those who would find comfort in this image of Christ, would hear it and would think, when is he coming? Is it next week? Is it tomorrow? Is it even now? And then you would have others who would hear that message and think, oh, well, I hope this doesn't happen in my lifetime. You have the Son of God. The second feature about him is he has eyes like a flame of fire. We heard that as well in Revelation 19. Boys, if you took a lighter, I'm not recommending this, but maybe with your dad you could do it. If you took a lighter and you held it up to a stick of butter, what would happen to that butter pretty soon as you lit the flame? Flame would cut through the butter, the butter would fall apart, make a big mess, your mom would get upset. When you, when you take a candle, we did this yesterday with a birthday cake, and, and you light a candle made of wax, what happens to the wax pretty soon in proximity to the flame? It melts, it drips, it wastes away, the fire cuts through it. If you take a log and throw it into a bonfire, you take, I don't know, a grapevine that's been dead forever in a day, and you throw it onto a bonfire and light it up, what happens to it? It gets consumed immediately. If you take a rock 
and you throw it into a burning fire. If the fire is hot enough, that rock's going to crack right open and disintegrate. If you take metal and put it before a torch or a laser beam, the light, the flame itself, concentrated as it is, will burn right through you know, steel, a steel bar. The power of fire, it's unquenchable when it's unleashed, when it's unrestrained when it's given the fuel that's needed to be able to burn up. And that's the image here given to us of Christ's eyes, and particularly what the eyes do. They cut through everything. They penetrate, as I said earlier, the darkest darkness cuts through the thickest veils. That's the image given to us of Christ here. His eyes are like a flame of fire, but he penetrates much more than material. He's not Superman, where he can see through everything but lead. He's not got x-ray vision or something. No, what does 1 Samuel uh, 16, verse 7 say about God's sight? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart of a man. And what does Revelation 2, 23 in our very passage say? He says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Even the, if we can say it this way, the deeds of your hearts and your minds. He sees down into the darkest recesses of our very being. He knows when we're faking it, and he knows when we're making it. He knows all things about us. That's the picture of Christ here. In the image of his eyes in much, um, I, th- I would think, modern evangelical discussion is really not this image. It's more the image of a weeping Jesus, weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus weeping at Lazarus' grave. And these are good things to cherish in our hearts, but we mustn't forget that his eyes are also instruments of his justice where he searches out for sin to punish it, even as he's searching for sinners to save, mind you. We see mercy in his earthly ministry, yes, but also uh, we see omniscience and justice in his ascended kingship, supported by the third feature here in our text, his feet are like burnished bronze. This is picked up from Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And we might ask, why? What, what is this? Well, it's picked up later by Roman emperors after the empire Christianizes, and you'll frequently see them portrayed in mosaics with, with red shoes, the, the basileus, which is a word for king, but it was usually attributed to his shoes. And it's picking up on this image. It's a sign of his royal authority. And that which was understood by the Christian Roman emperors should be understood by us as we approach this text as well, that these Feet of burnished bronze represent his royal judgment coming to uh, the threshing floor, if you will, of his judgment, as it says in Micah 4, verse 13. In Revelation 19, 12, and 13, we read this. This same image is given to us again. Not only does he have eyes as a flame of fire, but he has crowns stacked upon his head. He has feet of burnished bronze, and he's coming as a conquering king. And so that's the picture given to us as we enter this message to the church in Thyatira. Though he's a savior of sinners, and the, the, the 
The footsteps, if you will, of his earthly ministry bring us joy because he's condescending to us to give the gospel to us, to come and say, I have come to save, to seek and to save that which was lost, to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind. Yet also his feet come in judgment. He's the savior of sinners, but he's also the avenger of all wrongdoing. Yes, we rest on the rock of his salvation, but yet this is the rock which comes and smashes all the kingdoms of the earth which resist him. How blessed to receive him now rather than to face him then. As we wrap up this characterization of Christ, I just want to put this before you, particularly you boys and girls as, you, as you're seated in the pews. Don't think that he'll never come in judgment because he will. But he has come to you even this night in mercy and in grace calling you, pleading with you to cast yourself upon him, not as a destructive rock, but as a rock upon which to build your lives and upon which to rest all your anxieties and fears and all of your doubts. And so take him up on that while you can, lest you face him then when his eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. So we see that this is the God who sees down and who sees you and sees the church down to its most secret parts. But what does he see in particular about this church in Thyatira? Well, the question there is answered by our second heading. Christ sees the impurity of the church, highlighted in verses 19 to 23. He sees the impurity of the church. And here in these verses, we see two features of the church in Thyatira that are brought to bear, but then also a threat from the God who sees in response to these two features. First, a commendation of the church in Thyatira. This is not the dead church of Sardis. This is not the lukewarm church of Laodicea, and certainly not like our friends in Ephesus who had lost their first love. Thyatira is a true church with true believers. On the whole, quite faithful. Look what it says in verse 19. Jesus says to them, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. See, this congregation is marked by love, perhaps much like we are here. We love serving each other, opening up our homes to each other, and being with one another, and, and gathering around the Word, and discussing it, and talking about not just theology, but about the beauty and glories of Christ, and all that He's done in our lives, and comforting each other in sorrows, and even, uh, well, when the occasion arises, confronting each other in our sins, but out of hearts of love. And that's what characterizes this church here. What is it in Galatians 5 that heads that catalog of the fruits of the Spirit? It's love out of which everything else flows. And in like fashion here, it's love expressed in faith and service and in persevering faith and service. McShane makes uh, a point. I don't know if it has much exegetical soundness, but it's a good point. Why is it that faith is nestled between love and service? It's because as you love, and that expresses itself in service, your faith would be strengthened and bolstered. And then fuel your love, which expresses itself in service. And you get this beautiful feedback loop. I think that's what characterizes this church in Thyatira. Why do I say that? Because whatever else Christ says to this church, what's coming in the subsequent verses, he says this to them. And he says that they are persevering in this. 
and that they're amplifying your deeds of late are greater than at first, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of social ostracization by the culture there in Thyatira, yet they're increasing in grace and love to the brethren. And what a testimony this gives to a watching world. For our young church here, as we seek to witness to our neighbors in Willow Creek or down the street in the new subdivisions or in just the surrounding area, I hope even if they just come to visit once or twice and never darken the doors again, they can sense the love that we have for one another. And they can say, you know what? Those people, they don't sing songs I know, but they love one another (laughs) if they're asked about what they encountered here. May that be our testimony. So that's the first thing that Christ sees about this church. But second, and this is where that extended illustration comes in, all that glitters is not gold in Thyatira. She has been infiltrated by a false teacher. Let's look at verse 21. Or verse 20, I'm sorry. But I have this against you. Oh, may Christ never say that to us. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. We need to unpack a little bit of of what's going on here. Who is this Jezebel? Is Jesus just inserting a figure to represent some kind of movement or teaching in the church? Or was this an actual person named Jezebel in Thyatira? It's impossible to know if it was was a person named Jezebel. But I do think we can say with no small degree of confidence that this was, in fact, a person that Christ is referencing in the church. Perhaps even a female figure. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. He wouldn't say that about a false teaching abstractly. I think this was an actual person in the church who was spreading falsehood. Perhaps what in the ancient uh, Near East um, mystery religions and mystery cults would have been, quote unquote, the deep things of God which then Jesus unmasks as, in fact, being the deep things of Satan in our passage a little bit later. This person, he characterizes as Jezebel, probably not her actual name. I would be really uh, shocked uh, upon getting to heaven and hearing, actually, it was a woman named Jezebel in Thyatira, because I don't think the name would have been all that popular, at least not among uh, ethnic Jews in the community, since she's one of the chief antagonists and villains in the Old Testament. In the, uh, in the former prophet's narratives of Elijah. And just like in the last letter to the church in Pergamum, Christ uses the image of Balaam, and he uses the, uh, the, the, te- um, Balaam, the teaching of Balaam and Balak and, uh, to characterize the Nicolaitans. I think here he's characterizing a false teacher, giving her the name Jezebel in their midst, this false prophetess. What was the problem with Jezebel? Well, we unmask one issue of hers in 1 Kings. But if we flash forward to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 22, when finally the chickens come home to roost, and the judgment of God is executed upon Ahab's house in the, the person of murderous Jehu, Joram says to Jehu, do you bring peace? And Jehu says this, what peace? so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. 
this is what Jezebel had imported into the northern kingdom of Samaria. And this is exactly what this false prophetess does in Revelation chapter 2, bringing in false teachings and idolatries, compromises with the truth, perhaps teaching the flock to compromise with the world around it for the sake of material gain or social acceptability. Because look at what she does. She says, uh, she leads my bondservants astray, Christ says, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The only context I can think of in that culture where those two things would be brought together would and, and infiltrate an otherwise faithful church would be for the sake of commercial transactions, being members of the guilds, being able to hold down a job. You had to participate in these feasts in which there was all manner of adultery and immorality and idolatry. And she might have been coming in and saying to them, you know what? And if this is the deep things of Satan, some kind of Gnosticism, the body doesn't really matter. So you can do whatever you want with your body in order to get what you need in order to go through the world. Perhaps she said something like, hey, you could go over here and you can do this. And then that way you might be able to talk to these people about Jesus and bring them into the church too. Who knows what exactly she was doing, but we know the results of it. This corruption of the people of God, leading them astray. But notice what Christ says against the church itself at the beginning of verse 20. But this I have against you, that you tolerate. That you tolerate. Tolerance. Tolerance is what he had against the church. That great modern virtue. We have been told since the beginning of this country, at least since the Enlightenment, that tolerance is the way to success and material prosperity and all of these things. Now, modern tolerance is a bit, uh, perhaps a bit different than what tolerance is meant here, but at root, it's the same thing. We might tolerate things in our society and in our politics in a pluralistic context um, that we wouldn't tolerate in the church, that we shouldn't tolerate in the church. And that's really the problem here in our passage. I'm not going to get into uh, political theology right now, but at least for the sake of the life of the church, this kind of false teaching which leads astray God's people must never be tolerated. Dr. Piper has said it multiple times from this pulpit. I will say it again. Insofar as it is up to us in full reliance upon God, you will not hear false teaching, intentionally anyway, from this pulpit. That will not be tolerated in our midst. We are seeking, by God's grace and with his help, to be a pure church for the sake of your souls and the glory of God. That's what we're setting out to do. That's our aim. Otherwise, all of our witness, our love, faith, service, and perseverance in those things comes to naught. It's all in vain. For God cannot accept impurity in his church. Isn't that what he makes clear here? Look at the threat in verse 23. He says, well, starting in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. This threat is, 
It suits the crime, doesn't it? She who enticed and seduced the flock into theological compromise and purity and spiritual adultery then will be thrown onto a bed, not of seduction, but a bed of sickness. She'll be bedridden herself. And then Christ threatens to visit those who consorted with her, to visit them with tribulation and trial and difficulty unless they repent. Isn't that interesting that he throws that in here again? Unless they repent of her deeds. See, she's been given her chance. It's too late for her, for all intents and purposes. But it's not too late for the flock. Christ comes as a just judge against false teachers. But yet he's full of mercy for those who repent. It's not too late yet he comes. What sweet words those are. We might be stricken with terror at the thought of God's judgment, yes. But don't let that terror overwhelm what Christ is saying here. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he's been saying since the beginning of his public ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We seek for the spirit of God to lead us in repentance unto life. Repentance that blossoms into salvation. And what is the promise of repentance? What does this salvation look like? Well, consider our third heading together. Christ is the church's eternal reward. And we're going to flash through these verses. You could do a whole sermon just on this. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In presenting to us the reward of saving faith in Christ, and repentance unto life, and giving us this offer, if you will, this promise. There's a condition and a result. It's a conditional promise. The condition of the promise is to practice intolerance, ironically enough. That might sound aggressive to our ears, but not intolerance of certain classes or ethnicities of men, not intolerance of certain languages or cultures. We know from the rest of Revelation that every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will bend the knee at the throne of God, but intolerance of falsehood, intolerance of idolatry, intolerance of spiritual adultery. Jezebel came peddling the deep things of God, which turned out to be in all actuality the deep things of Satan and his lies. And that is what must be rejected if the rewards of God are to be received with gladness, fullness, and joy. Whatever your elders do, keep in mind that each one of you are responsible to practice this kind of intolerance against false teaching. There's only so much that church officers can do to seek to protect the flock. We must also wrestle with this, steel ourselves against that which contradicts the word of God and his holy will. As a dear man uh, said at the funeral of his wife, he says, may God give us uh, hearts of tender flesh, but backbones of steel. Speaking in reference to Heidelberg Catechism, number one, what is uh, the Christian's only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own, 
but belong, and I don't have it memorized, but belong in, uh, in body and soul and spirit. I'm sure the Hams could give it to us if we needed them to. To Jesus Christ alone. What a great truth upon which to found our lives. That alone will equip you to withstand uh, the deep things of Satan, to be intolerant of falsehood in the church. And then you have the result of the promise in uh, verses 26 through 28 in particular. And this result is a reference to the Messianic Psalm 2, which I, I can't go into in its full detail. It warrants its own sermon, but it speaks of Christ's kingship. And that kingship, which is reflected for us in Revelation chapter 19, which we've already explored at some length. But what is the morning star at the end? That's not in Revelation chapter 2. So that, I think we, or that's not in Psalm 2. It's not necessarily described in Revelation 19 as such. And so we might ask, what is this? Well, it's Christ himself. As the heading indicates, Christ is the church's eternal reward. Christ promises to give us himself. This isn't the first time he's done it. Isn't he the, um, isn't he the hidden manna? Isn't he the fruit of the tree of life? Isn't he that which protects us and delivers us from the second death? This is the promise that again and again is laid out before those who would overcome, those who would persevere. It is Christ himself and his beauty and his goodness and his grace. He is the star that would come forth from the tribe of Judah. He is this morning star. You know who said that? Interestingly enough, Balaam said that in his prophecy. Balaam, who was referenced in the last letter. Remember, as these letters were read city by city, all seven of them would have been read together with the rest of Revelation. So it all goes together. We can't divorce them one from another. This is what is promised to us. Jesus Christ himself. Well, earlier I promised to you that I would circle back to Tolkien which uh, is, is always a good thing to do when you're working in illustration. He took that, that uh, Chaucer's, all that glitters is not gold, or Shakespeare's, wherever he got it from, probably not Bugs Bunny, I would imagine, and he flips it on his head. And in a brief poem in The Lord of the Rings, he says, all that is gold does not glitter. All that is gold does not glitter. Uh, all who wander are not lost. You know who he was describing? He was describing the Strider figure who ends up being the returning king of Gondor, Aragorn. Well, consider, and I know Tolkien was drawing from his understanding of Christ as well, consider our Christ in this connection. All that is gold does not glitter. He who set aside the riches of heaven to take to himself human vesture, humiliating himself, wallowing, as it were, in the dirt and dust of our earthly existence in a sin-wracked world, yet without sin himself, going through every stage of life that we live through on our behalf and being yet perfectly holy and sinless with no impurity, utterly intolerant of falsehood, utterly resilient against the schemes of the enemy, always and ever ready to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is described for us in Revelation as coming out of his mouth against the schemes of the evil one. Isaiah chapter 53 makes known to us that he would not have been attractive to us. We would have rejected him. He wouldn't have won any elections. He wouldn't even won a high school popularity contest. And yet, all that is gold does not glitter. 
Though there is nothing attractive about him in a worldly sense, yet he is of inestimable worth and value. And Christ, as the God who sees the truth about the church, gives himself as the church's eternal reward. This is what's on the line. Few things about him that we've looked at, you can hide nothing from him. He sees your every trial and knows your every triumph over unrighteousness, a great comfort, but also a great reality that should draw us to him, that should push us to him, to accept from him that offer of salvation. We see that those impurities which we bring to him in the confession of sin, he will scour away. He calls you to repent. Surely he will accept you in the sincerity of your heart. If you yearn for holiness, if you seek after truth, if you pursue wisdom, where might it be found? In him. It is in him that all the riches of wisdom are stored up. Whatever rewards of salvation we enjoy, whatever authority we're granted over men and angels, being set up as judges over them, whatever happens, whatever we experience, yet the delight of him, that is our chief delight, is it not? He is the morning star. That's the message of this letter, that Christ is the God who sees you. He is the Christian's eternal reward, and we ought to cast ourselves upon him for salvation. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.